So last week when Emily was preaching, she reminded us about how Jesus is at the center of our lives together as people of faith and in worship. She talked about how it wasn't Paul or Calvin or Moses. So today we're going to talk about Moses. Uh, We've got to have a little balance. So listen now for a word from God from Exodus 32. When the people saw that Moses delayed to come down from the mountain, they gathered around Aaron and said to him, Come, make gods for us who will go before us. As for this Moses, the man who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what has happened to him. Aaron said to them, Take off the gold rings that are on the ears of your wives, your sons, your daughters, and bring them to me. So all the people took off all their gold rings from their ears and brought them to Aaron. He took the gold from them and formed it into a mold and cast an image of a calf. And they said, This is your God, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. When Aaron saw this, he built an altar before it and announced tomorrow there will be a festival to the Lord. So the next day, the people rose early and offered burnt offerings and brought sacrifices of well-being, and the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up in revelry. The Lord said to Moses, Go down at once. Your people, whom you brought up out of the land of Egypt, have become corrupt. They have been quick to turn aside from the way that I commanded them, They have cast for themselves an image of a calf and have worshipped it and sacrificed to it and said, This is your God, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. The Lord said to Moses, I have seen these people, how stiff-necked they are. Now let me alone, so that my wrath may burn hot against them, and I may consume them. And of you I will make a great nation. But Moses, Moses implored the Lord his God and said, O Lord, why does your anger burn hot against your people, whom you brought up out of the land of Egypt, with great power and with a mighty hand? Why should the Egyptians say it was with evil intent that he brought them out to kill them in the mountains and to consume them from the face of the earth? Turn from your fierce anger, change your mind, And do not bring disaster on your people. Remember your servants, Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, how you swore to them by your own self, saying, I will make your descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky. I will give your descendants all this land I promised them, and it will be their inheritance forever. And God changed God's mind about the disaster that he planned to bring on his people. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So when I was reading this scripture text this week, it reminded me of a book, a very important work of fiction that we have read in our house called Waiting is Not Easy by Mo Willems. This is a fantastic book about Elephant and Piggy that talks about Piggy wants to give Elephant a gift and Elephant is having trouble waiting for it. But I think that kind of sums up what's going on with Israel here. They essentially demonstrated the story. God and Moses had been off on a sabbatical too long, and they got anxious. There was a leadership vacuum, you could say. 
And when you look at their history, it's not hard to understand why. Their life in Egypt was hard, but Pharaoh and his taskmasters were ever-present. They were micromanagers of their work. It says Pharaoh had his boot on the Israelites' neck, forcing them to make more and more bricks with less resources. Pharaoh was a cruel leader, but he was one that they could see. He made his presence known. And then comes in Moses with his miraculous staff that can turn into snake, that can part the Red Sea and bring water out of a rock. Moses, who talked with God, he was a leader that they could see and follow. And Yahweh, Yahweh pulled out all the stops after all of the plagues and the Pharaohs escaping across the sea. God led them in the wilderness with a pillar of cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night, literal fire for them to follow. So Yahweh had been very present and visible. And so when Moses went away to spend some time with Yahweh, I can understand why the people became unsettled. They were used to leaders that they could see and whose presence was known. And the more they waited, the more uncertain they became. And the more uncertain they became, the more anxious they became. And this anxiety leads to panic. And we can criticize them for this anxiety, but I think we as modern Americans have to be really careful with criticizing people for being impatient. With the modern intention spans, we're pretty bad at waiting ourselves. When I was in college, there was a question of if a professor didn't show up for class, did you have to wait for 10 minutes or 15 minutes before you left for the day? And we now have direct deposits for our paycheck. There's a 24-hour news cycle. You can reach someone day or night on their cell phones, and dinner can be ready within seconds with the microwave for which I'm particularly grateful. I had read a recent article that said that goldfish now have a longer attention span than the modern American. <laughs> so we as modern culture have no, are in no position to look down on the Israelites impatient. Not knowing what happens next creates anxiety. That's why when we go to meetings and retreats, we have schedules and agendas so we know what's coming up. And anxiety, once it starts to build, has some lies that it tells people. Anxiety tells you that you need to worry. If you're not worrying, then something bad will happen. And if there's not something obvious to worry about, anxiety will find it for you. Anxiety tells you that you are not safe and that you will be stuck like this forever. And so the Israelites in this story let their anxiety take over. They rushed to Aaron with their concerns, and Aaron rushed to solve the problem. You know, when you look back at the Hebrew, it's kind of ambiguous about whether they're talking about God or gods. It's kind of blurry. And so I wonder if Aaron was trying to make a compromise they wanted some gods that reminded them of the kind of gods that people worshipped back in Egypt. And so Aaron was like, okay, I'll make this calf, and this will represent Yahweh, who brought you out of the land of Egypt. It was a foolish idea, but 
I can see where he was coming from. And it reminds me of a movie that we watched when I was growing up. And there's this certain scene in the movie um, that my parents would refer to when my brother and I were being particularly chaotic um, and running around and making a mess, my parents would say, put the candle back. Now, do you guys know what movie that's from? It's from Young Frankenstein, right? <laughs> There's this great scene in the movie where Frankenstein is, where the main character, Gene Wilde, is trying to find the laboratory, and he's looking at this wall, and he's looking for the trigger, right? The hidden thing that he can press that will make this wall turn into a door. His lovely assistant picks a candle up out of its holder, and that starts the spinning. The whole platform moves with the door, and at one point, he even stands in between the door and the wall as it's crushing him to try to get it to stop spinning. And when he's standing in that door, he says, put the candle back. And this is what my parents would say to us. It was a way to say, just stop for a second. Hold still. Be still and know that I am God. Take a beat. Take a breath. Stop chasing your tail and letting your fear run you. I've learned over the years that you can't change your personality by force. You can't just decide that I'm going to start becoming a detailed person, and so now I am. You can't decide you're going to stop interrupting people and then just do it. But what you can do, if you want to change, is learn to take a breath between the trigger and your response. If you can just take that one small moment to breathe and center yourself, that becomes the center of all change that is possible, all change that is real. Look, change is hard and scary even good change. The Israelites were leaving oppressive slavery to go to a land flowing with milk and honey, and they were terrified. But even if change is scary, it's also inevitable. And in this story, even God changes God's mind. But I think, too, we have to take a moment, a pause, a beat, and look at a particular part in this story. When Moses pleads to the Lord to reconsider his anger, Moses says, I will give your descendants all this land I promised them, and it will be their inheritance forever. I think it would be wrong today to read this text about the promised land without also mentioning the violence that's happening in that land this week. If you've been watching the news, you have probably seen and heard many of the horrors of the violence in Jerusalem and on the Gaza Strip. And in this text, it references these promises of God. And we need to pause when we look at them in conversation with modern-day Israel and Palestine. Because how modern Christians understand the promises of God about this land shapes our policy and shapes our relationship with the Middle East. So our theology has very real implications that impact the lives of modern-day Palestinians and Israelites. This reality bears brutal consequences for those who dwell in the land, especially the Palestinians in the West Bank and Gaza. 
to read God's promises superimposed on modern, the modern nation of Israel is too simplistic. It forces our modern worldview on texts that are over 6,000 years old. As Presbyterians, we believe that you should use the Bible to interpret the Bible. Paul writes to us today from a prison cell, so we can hardly call him a Pollyanna, but he says, let your gentleness be known to everyone. Whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is commendable, think about these things. So as we pause today, let's ask some questions. What does God's faithfulness to God's promises imply the impression of another? Does God's favor and extend promises to a particular group of people? And if so, who exists on the other side of those promises? A friend of mine used to work for a long time in Jerusalem, and she referenced a friend of hers who lives in Israel. She grew up in Jerusalem and lives there still, and this is what she had to say this week. She talked about dual loyalty. She said it's to hold this moment between the heartbreak and the pain and the shock over the destruction of the kibbutz in Israel and the anxiety over the destruction in Gaza and think about the people there. Loyalty may not be the right word. It's dual pain, dual heartbreak, care and love. It is to hold everyone's humanity. And it's hard. It's so hard to have humanity here. It's exhausting. And it feels like time after time, the world is just asking you to let go. It's so much easier to choose a side. It almost doesn't matter which one. Just choose and stick to it. And at least reduce the amount of pain you hold. At least feel a part of a group and less alone in all of this as if that's really an option, as if we don't understand that our pains are intertwined. Friends, change happens. Anxiety happens, but God invites us in that moment to take a breath, to not ask for the Holy Spirit to come, but to listen for the Holy Spirit that's already there. Just like this moment of peace we had today in Cooper's baptism, it's in these tiny, small spaces, the beat between the violence and the response, the destruction and the hope. That is where God is at work and God is within us. Paul says, keep on doing the things that you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, and the peace of God will be with you. Amen. Thank you.